You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. So I have with us today Matthew Davey, who is the chief strategy officer for Kiva. And Kiva was one of the first firms that I actually came across when I was starting to get interested in this whole field. And it introduced me to microfinance and so many other things. So, um, you know, this institution you're a part of has been an innovator in financial inclusion for almost 15 years. But I think why we were interested to have you on the podcast now is that You've made some, uh, Kiva's made some really bold moves recently that we want to talk about in this interview. So for our listeners, though, who might not be as familiar with the origins of Kiva, can you give us a quick background, quick overview of the work that Kiva's historically done? Yes, and thank you for having me. Um, So as you may or may not know, Kiva has been around for about 15 years, and traditionally we've been a crowdfunding marketplace to fund microfinance around the world. And so what that means is we work with everyday individuals like myself or like you, um, who $25 at a time uh, put money in through Kiva.org. And that money is bundled up and then distributed to microfinance borrowers in over 90 countries around the world. And over the last 15, almost 15 years, we've deployed about a billion and a half dollars in microloans with over a billion of that going to women. And what's really interesting about that, or interesting to me at least, is We've debunked this myth that unbanked borrowers aren't creditworthy. We have a 97% repayment rate, which is on par with U.S. credit card repayment rates. And so even when you go to places where a scooter is driving out with cash to a village to deploy microfinance, you're seeing as good credit rates as you see for consumer credit in the United States. Yeah, and I think the thing as a you know early user of Kiva, um, it just felt so tangible to say, uh, this woman's trying to buy a cow because having this cow can give her a whole economic livelihood. And if you loan her 25 bucks and so does a bunch of other people, this actually is possible. It's just, it's, it's such a um, sort of basic concept and then to see it get paid back. But why, can you explain also maybe sort of what the, why, why isn't that $25, it seems so small to us, available and, and the broader concept of sort of financial inclusion versus exclusion? Yeah, I mean, lack of, lack of financial services, oftentimes we think of it as convenience of how easy is it to use money or to use digital money or credit cards versus cash in the developed world. And when you go to the developing world, it's just a lack of access. Like, think about your life if you didn't have access to cash or a credit card or to if you have a smartphone, which you probably do, to Apple or Android Pay. Like, there's a point where it gets less and less convenient. And then it hits a point where it actually impacts your access to opportunity. And so the ability in the developing world to go from one cow to two cows to six cows is not just about how many cows you have on your ranch. It's about building a lifestyle where you can pay for your kids to go to school, where you can actually buy a plot of land and eventually hopefully build a house for multi-generations to live in. That that level of financial access actually just limits or it's a gateway to opportunity. Um, and so there is a big difference between being financially included and excluded. We take it for granted so much. I know I do that, 
you know, we basically get free credit for 30 days and, you know, that, that that's not the status quo in a lot of, for most people. That, that is correct. And when you go to the unbanked world, when, when we talk about unbanked individuals, which by the way, via the last assessment by World Bank, there are 1.7 billion adults. So almost 40% of the world's adults have no access to even a basic savings account. So they operate almost entirely in cash. And any credit they have is really constrained to relatives or community members who know them personally being willing to lend them money at the marketplace or to do something in town. It, it is a really different world to have no access that, again, you might have the ability to pay for your kids to go to school if those payments could be spread out over 12 months, but you have to pay in January. And so without access to credit, where you know you can repay and a lender would know you could repay over 12 months, you can't zoom that cash into January and make the payment. And you might be in a situation where you're deciding between feeding your kids and sending your kids to school and you likely choose to feed your kids. Um, and so lack of access to capital really Again, in the developed world, I think we think a lot about money as what capital means, but what it actually does for you, it does education, it does nutrition, it does healthcare, it does housing, that when you move down the financial inclusion ladder, you get to a spot where capital actually, and, and credit in particular, the lack of access to those will impact those basic needs. So what I'm excited for us to talk about today with that sort of basic framing is that um we're not sort of talking about financial inclusion as usual, that there have been a bunch of approaches to financial inclusion, um, but but you're taking this much different, and I think sometimes hard for people to understand sort of systems approach to the $1.7 billion. Um, so let's jump into that. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what does this really mean to think about systems change rather than Band-Aids? Yeah. So over the past 15 years, Kiva.org, or I should say almost 15 years, we'll hit it this October, um, Kiva.org has had massive impact. And every dollar of that $1.5 billion that's gone, gone out in over 90 countries around the world, every dollar is incredibly impactful. However, the problem of financial exclusion and the amount of capital needed is only getting worse right now. It's actually not getting better. And that's because the system, the, the financial sector that moves money around the world and that you and I use and that, that everybody in the developed world uses, that system is not inclusive by design. That system was built around infrastructure that makes it too hard, too risky, or too expensive to serve someone who's not currently served and specifically to serve poor people to serve people who make under $10 a day. It's, it's very difficult to serve them because if it costs $5 to do an identity check on that individual and they make $10 a day, it's very hard to make the economics work to actually do that $5 identity check or even if it was a $2 identity check. And so at Kiva, having been at this for 15 years, having seen that the unbanked are broadly credit worthy to the same level that you and I are credit worthy sitting in major metropolitan areas, we decided to take a step back and say, how would you change the underlying system? What's missing? Like what is incomplete in the system and why is it that it's so hard or expensive or insecure to serve currently unbanked customers? And so Kiva's taking a lens towards that system change saying, in order to see the inclusive future we wanna see, it's going to take something in addition to just deploying capital. It's going to take someone being willing to go out there, and hopefully it is a federation of many someones, to go out there and say, we're going to make this extension or help complete the system in this sector. 
So from Kiva's perspective, the next most logical thing to do would be to take everything that we've benefited from at Kiva and all the learnings that we've had about how to operate in the unbanked world, how to do identity verification, how to actually extend credit and understand and appropriately price risk and work with microfinance providers and those informal sector lenders and extend those tools to the entire financial sector. And so we've developed something we call Kiva Protocol and it is an underlying system that uses emerging technologies. I won't call them new because they've been around for decades, but emerging technologies for the financial sector to help bring in an open source nature the same systems that Kiva has used to operate very effectively over the past 15 years and to bring those to the existing financial sector. And our hope is that what we can do is help extend the formal financial sector so that inclusion is not a separate priority, so that you don't have to have banks that actually can't serve unbanked borrowers or informal sector you know, financial service providers who can't serve a formal sector borrower. We would like to stitch those together because there is an entire ecosystem of informal lenders. And the problem is they're not connected to the formal financial sector. And because they're not connected, it's hard for them to operate. It's expensive for them to operate. And what that leads to for consumers is very limited choice and agency and very high interest rates that make it hard to use credit. Yeah. And I think uh, there's, I think, sort of a touchstone story that I know Neville, uh, the CEO of Kiva, told on our SoCap main stage. But I think just to make this a little more tangible for folks, sort of that stitching together piece, um, I love the story about, about the yeah. woman who wants to build the house. <laughs> yeah. So to, to make this come to life, maybe I can tell you a story about an informal sector borrower in rural Kenya. And she's been a borrower through microfinance for her entire life. She's actually borrowed through Kiva Microfinance Partners in Kenya for the last 10 years. And over that 10 years, she's taken out over $15,000 of loans and has an absolutely perfect repayment history. And she's like the penultimate example of the success of microfinance. She went from having no cows to getting a loan and having one cow. She went from having one cow to having many cows. She went from having many cows to having the cows and building a hardware store and then a small convenience store or market, and even up to the point where she was able to buy a plot of land. And so you could be in Kenya and you're talking with this woman and she says, my aspiration is to go and to build a house on this land, build, build on the property so that three generations of my family can live there. And if I can do that, my life is set. Like everybody has a place to live. I can use the cows in the market. My daughters can go to college. And you ask her, you're like, well, that's great. So you'll walk down to the bank. You've got, you know, 10 years of history and $15,000 of history, and you only need a $10,000 loan to go and, and build that property. You're like the perfect candidate to go get credit. And her response is, no, I'll die and that land will still be empty. And the reason is because if you take a step back, everything she's done in the informal sector, when she walks into the bank, they will end up saying, I'm sorry, like I can't accept any of that past credit history. And the reason is because I don't know that this is all of your credit history. I don't know if you've defaulted on seven other loans that you're not showing me. And even if Kiva came in and Kiva said, man, we've worked with this woman for 10 years. She's a perfect credit risk. Like, please underwrite her loan. The bank won't do it. And it's because of a lack of data, specifically a lack of identity and credit history. And she's the penultimate example. This is the shortcoming of having two systems, of having an informal sector and a formal sector, is that that on-ramp to opening your first account, just to getting a loan that's less than the total loans that you've taken over the past decade, where you have a perfect repayment history, like that's broken. 
the system is incomplete. It doesn't stitch together well. And so we would like to see that problem solved. And we believe that because we've operated in the informal sector for 15 years, we actually have the ability to help build that on-ramp into the formal sector. And really, it's this it's blockchain technology that's sort of allowing this to happen at scale, right? Yeah, there's a lot of ways and technology choices you could look at, but it's been really interesting. Decentralized technology and blockchain is really resilient when you think about the informal sector in the developing world. When you think about a place where you're trying to build a system where a, a regulated bank could trust informal data coming out of the informal sector, this is something that cryptography and blockchain are actually very good at. Like one of the reasons blockchain and cryptocurrencies work, in my opinion, is their ability to establish trust in a trustless environment, that you can trust the data and you can trust a transaction in major cryptocurrencies, not because you actually know who you're transacting with. It's actually the antithesis of the way community credit happens in the developing world of the reason this woman can get local credit is because she knows the MFI agent from growing up together, or she knows the local shopkeeper, or she and her cousins loan each other money based on who has money and who needs money. Blockchain allows all of those transactions to happen without knowing who's on the other side. And so when you think about technology choices to try to bridge between the formal and informal sector, there's a very good case to say decentralized ledger technologies, you know, blockchain technologies are the right forward-looking technology choice because you're putting in technologies that don't require all these trust mechanics around it. Yeah, and so you're basically allowing people to sort of have that link between their identity and their credit history and have it sort of travel with them, be connected to all different sorts of things. And so there's sort of two implications here or, or ways that you that Kiva's putting that that to use. And so you've actually launched this sort of digital identity ability to do credit checks in in Sierra Leone um, just in, in the summer of 2019, right? Yeah, so we're in the process of launching it. We did open the pilot in 2019. And, and, and you are correct that that what Keeper Protocol does is uses blockchain technology to empower individuals to have identity and verifiable identity. And then to tie that identity where they control the data, but to start controlling their own financial data. So that this woman, if she had had this 10 years ago in Kenya, would have been able to actually store that data about her credit history in the informal sector. And when she goes to the bank, the bank being able to trust the integrity of the data without having to trust this woman. And that's really, really important because that's how you can stitch the system together and build trust in an on-ramp from the informal to the formal sector. In Sierra Leone in particular, um, we're working at a national scale with their government, with multiple UN agencies, and with all the financial service providers in the country, formal and informal, to actually implement this at national scale. And so last summer in August, we actually launched and had a, a relatively large event with the president there and the finance minister and a whole bunch of cabinet members, but did the first um, KYC check that used Kiva protocol. And this is, uh, it was a woman. Know your customer. Is that right? Yes. Thank you very much. We did our first yeah. know your, <laughs> know, your first know your customer check. Um, and this was a woman who had been denied 10 times opening a, a basic savings account because she couldn't provide the adequate documentation that she either didn't have or it wouldn't be accepted the paper trail she was bringing to prove that she was Nancy. And she was able to come on stage and with just her national ID number and her thumbprint, it was able to perform a know your customer check. And that's really, really empowering on both sides of that transaction. For Nancy, she's able to prove who she is without having to find a bunch of paperwork that she probably doesn't have. And for the bank, importantly, that bank 
they've always wanted to open an account for Nancy. They were never allowed to because they couldn't they couldn't work with her to pass the compliance check. The bank is doing backflips that it's that easy for Nancy to prove who she is. Because again, the bank officer, the loan officer knows who Nancy is. He lives in the same city that she lives in. Like they've known each right. other for 20 years. And literally, he's not allowed to open an account for her until this system came online. And it's it's life changing. This is, you know, we talk about Nancy and Sierra Leone or talk about the woman who should get that $10,000 loan in Rwanda. This type of system removes the systemic barrier to that happening. It sounds as hard as going to the DMV to get your real ID. (laughs) I swear (laughs) I never show up with the right documents. Um, Yep. So, (laughs) uh, and so, yeah, super empowering allows this stitching together, as you've talked about, um, Sierra Leone is kind of a, um, you, you chose a big challenge, but I mean, I think some of the interesting parts of this are that even in sort of the most impoverished, um, shortest life expectancy, really challenging environments, this technology sort of leapfrogs, um, so many other markers of development and can enable some really amazing potential. Yeah, there is a there is an amazing opportunity, and and I personally think it'll be over the next ten years in the developing world where technology really has not been there um, for all of technology's history. That there hasn't been internet connectivity, there hasn't been access to devices, and over the past couple of years, you're seeing connectivity and device access accelerate in the developing world. And what that means is there is no entrenched existing system. There is no system. There's not even regulations and policies that force things to be done in an inefficient way. And so I, I think one of the legacy opportunities available to all financial service providers today is to build the future we want to see and to not have it encumbered by all of the legacy stuff. That just the other day to get paid for something, actually had to take a photocopy of a voided check just so they could read off the bottom of the voided check, the account number and the routing number in the United States. Um, I, I couldn't just enter those forms or I couldn't digitally collect them to my bank. They, they needed all that, plus they needed a scanned copy of my check. Hopefully, we don't build those systems for the developing world, because if we do, we're just building in hurdles that all of us wish could be removed from our system. And so it, it, it's an incredible opportunity. It's hard. There is a lack of infrastructure. They haven't had the benefit in many of these countries of 30 years of experience with digital. So there's a lot of education and consumer protection work that has to go into it. But I will say there are a lot of very cool things you can do and very human centric things you can do because you're not encumbered by legacy systems. And that's why I think it's really important for actors like Kiva to be involved. Kiva as someone who is not seeking profit maximization. Kiva as someone who is seeking helping individuals get out of poverty and become financially included. It's important to have those voices at the table. And that's why I'm so you know head over heels that Kiva was in a position and had the appetite to actually take on this challenge and do something like Kiva Protocol. You sort of mentioned um, perception and there's perception on both sides. So there's sort of the perception by the capital providers of, is this actually um, a safe and prudent way for place for me to loan money or provide equity or whatever that is. And there's also perception on the side of, the population that's accessing these tools for the first time. So what are, I mean, those are sort of two different questions. Maybe let's start with the, um, with the consumers. 
how, what are the ways that those hurdles of perception and sort of cultural adoption are being bridged? Yeah, I mean, if anybody who goes and spends a substantial amount of time in the informal sector or in the unbanked world will see that humans are incredibly adaptable and have just adapted around how the system is because there is no ability in the informal sector to impact this change. The change is controlled by regulations in the formal sector, which are there for good reason. So for consumers, it's just normal that loans will cost, you know, 30 to 100 percent APR and will only be available, you know, 500 to 1000 dollars at a time. And it's just part of life that that's going to create a bunch of difficult decisions and add a bunch of stress and limit access to opportunity. And it's not desired, but humans are very adaptable um, and you will see this on the ground. It's very normal. You know, the woman in Kenya I, I referenced before almost laughed it off that, the, I mean, she was disappointed about it, but almost laughed it off that, of course, this plot will be empty when I die, even though I've done, the, like, that was just how it was, and it wasn't changing. And as someone who bridges from the formal to the informal in my daily life and in my work life, um, that's unfortunate, and that should be fixed. And so for consumers, I think when you start introducing this technology, there's almost nothing but upside as long as you provide the appropriate consumer education, both digital education and financial literacy education. It's really empowering to see when they see these tools made available to them because it's like an almost unexpected gift. And there's a bunch of partners that are doing that that education. And yeah, that is correct. And anything this big, when you talk about 1.7 billion people or you talk about systems change at a national level, I don't believe, and, and Kiva doesn't believe, that any organization should try to do alone. This is something that involves technology. It involves private sector financial service providers. It involves public sector and regulators. It involves international policy and legislation. And we are working in Sierra Leone with that entire universe. And we would never have the hubris to try to do it ourselves, nor would that, that be the right thing. That if we want an anti-fragile future, if we want something that is resilient and will last in these places, it needs to be not reliant on one party. It needs to be a entire federation of groups trying to build the same future. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, we talk a lot about um, valuable strangers and unlikely allies, just sort of the cross-sector collaboration that really is where so much of the progress and innovation is happening in on all, the, all of these issues. Um, so back to the perception piece on the other side, uh, yeah. you know, you're sort of this intermediary. What about the capital side and that perception of um, investing in Sierra Leone? Yeah, I mean, if, if you go up to the formal financial sector, there are trillions of dollars of idle capital that are you know, trying to be really select to find 10 or 20 basis points or two or three basis points uh, and would love to deploy into a place like Sierra Leone if they could. And I think a lot of times the formal sector gets a bad rap because it doesn't deploy money into the developing world. And I think that more can be done on that side, but it's very fair. There's a bunch of consumer protections that make it so that for any of us who are listening to this podcast on our smartphone, it makes it so that using Apple Pay and Android Pay or using your credit card or having a savings account, you are relatively buffered and don't think every time you do a transaction about money laundering, about terrorists, about you know someone defrauding you, that there are systems built around that. Unfortunately, those systems are what make a breakpoint between, uh, you know, to pick any, any big multinational bank deploying money into Sierra Leone. It's not just a matter of we only deploy $100 million at a time and Sierra Leone is not ready to absorb that tomorrow. It's a matter of I have FATF requirements, and if I can't pass a know-your-customer check and an anti-money laundering check, I can't perform the transaction. 
And so what we hope with Kiva Protocol and with what we're doing in Sierra Leone is that we can actually help solve that problem. Because these big banks, they would love to deploy capital into these regions, not just from an impact perspective, also from a yield perspective. And we think that over the next couple of years in Sierra Leone and in other countries, initiatives like Kiva Protocol will close that gap. So that the only remaining hurdle for a big bank is what's their minimum amount? Is the minimum amount 10 million? Is it 50 million? Is it 100 million? And if you can get to that point, you're now on par with any other place they might put that money. And we hope to see money kind of flood into the developing world. And so um, you, you're working on at least one fund, the Refugee Fund, but maybe more than that that I'm not aware of. Um, how are those part of sort of this bigger systems change piece? I think you know we've already touched on identity and refugees are obviously sort of in this transitional, um, how do they link their identity, credit history, all of those. So we can see how sort of this technology benefits refugees potentially um, in that way. But what's the purpose of the fund? Yeah, if, if you look at what we're doing at Kiva on top of our traditional crowdfunding marketplace, it's really what are the obvious bridges between what we've done historically and much bigger financial inclusion efforts. And so we just talked about Kiva Protocol. I'll put that to the side. With Kiva Capital, we're actually standing up a fund manager because, as I said, we have $1.5 billion of transaction histories over 90 countries showing that the default rate is under 3% for these types of loans. We would like big banks and bigger fund managers to deploy a lot more capital than Kiva deploys because we don't have enough to do it. No one has enough to do it. We need a federated approach. We would like them to start deploying. I will say it's unreasonable for them to just trust Kiva and go and do it. So the first one of the first things we're doing is setting up a fund manager and we've raised a $30 million fund to take our refugee work. And after we have de-risked it with Kiva.org, our marketplace money, then to have a fund that on a yield basis, something that looks just like a vehicle that any big bank or investment manager could use, goes and deploys capital behind that. So what we're trying to do is walk the fund structure up the food chain until we get to something that is proven and is compatible with the large fund managers to get to a point where like right now, if you go to a big pension fund or a big union fund, as an example, and say, look, look at this historical, this has a 3% risk, it's returning 7%, you should make this investment. Right now, it's a bridge too far for them to say yes. Our hope with Kiva Capital is that we can have a lot more impact, but our real long-term aspiration is that this can help make it palatable for the broader formal financial sector to deploy into the informal sector. So it's kind of us taking one step up the food chain towards them. And, and you are correct. We are, the first fund is the Kiva Refugee Investment Fund, and it's a $30 million fund. Um, we will do additional refugee funds behind that I am very confident. And then you can look at Kiva's impact and where Kiva loans have gone historically, whether you want to look at a gender lens of over 80% of our loans have gone to women, or in a rural agricultural finance lens, we will stand up other funds over the next two years along those same impact verticals so that we can go to investors who care about a gender lens and have a vehicle for them to deploy or go to those who care about a rural agriculture or an education lens and deploy through those. And, and that's partly because you have all of this sort of existing information and um lending history through the marketplace. And then that's sort of an on-ramp to this fund as well. That, that is correct. Kiva is trying to use everything that we've done over the past 15 years and maximally extend that to everybody else. And so while we can't and wouldn't take all of our borrower information from the past 15 years and share it with the bank, 
what we can do is use that data for our own fund and then use the results of that fund to encourage others to stand up their own funds. And so we're just really trying to find the opportunities where Kiva's marketplace over the past 15 years and all of the data and all of the impact of that marketplace are an amazing launch pad to take a real shot at getting trillions of dollars to deploy into the unbanked world. And, and that is the core of it. Like sub-Saharan Africa will take over a trillion US dollars to include those who are excluded in sub-Saharan Africa. And the only way we're going to do that is if we can get to the spot where the world's largest financial institutions can and will deploy into that sector. I want to switch gears here a little bit. You, We've been talking about the 15 years Kiva's been doing this work, but you haven't been with Kiva for 15 years. You have a really interesting background, um, sort of always in emerging technology. But can you share a little bit about sort of how you came to this work, the various things you did before, and why is this the thing that really gets you now? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe give you the origin story. Um, you know, I, I did my PhD in environmental engineering and definitely started my career trying to figure out how could we use markets to save the world, but I was coming at it from an environmental end. And so I came out of Stanford and like half of Stanford PhDs got wrapped up into a startup that was looking at sustainable travel and how to bring economic viability to rural communities. And I've kind of since then stayed on the bleeding edge of technology. Um, I went and was kind of leading edge on Facebook and what social channels meant on Facebook in the gaming space. I was bleeding edge on some mobile gaming stuff with Sega. And then I had kids. And I think like a lot of people who have kids, I, I started thinking a lot more deeply about what future do I want to see for them? And how can I how can I help build that future or at least make sure every day what I'm doing is leading towards a better future for my children? And when the opportunity for Kiva came along, of Kiva was looking at not just the crowdfunding marketplace, it was looking at doubling down on that two years ago, but also it was taking a step up and saying, we have the opportunity to do a lot more. What are those things and how can we leverage emerging technology to do those things? That was incredibly interesting to me. This was a Kiva is in a prime position based on what we've done for the past 15 years to understand what's possible. And we're looking at combining emerging technologies. And so this is really kind of a dream legacy role for me to be able to spend all of my time focused on emerging technology, getting the developing world, and how can we make a more inclusive future when that's happening? Like, what can Kiva do to try to put our thumb on the scale and have the future be more inclusive for everybody? And I just hope that we and others can continue to push on this because an inclusive future is what I'd love to leave my kids with. Yeah. I, want, I mean, I have young kids too, and it's definitely, um, there's no more complacency, I, I don't think, or at least it diminishes it because you're sort of like, it becomes real in a different way. Um, but I do always have this like little creepiness feeling sometimes still around technology. And so then when we talk about technology in emerging markets, and especially then linked to finance and money, um, you know, there's so many privacy consumer protection issues here in the U.S. and um, developed economies. So how does that, how do those risks or sort of unintended consequences, um, how do you keep those in the forefront and, and think about those in, as, we, as you sort of push this technology in emerging markets? Yeah, part of this loops back to the fact that so, so in the developed world, we have a bunch of legacy challenges. And, and as an example, like your credit data gets hacked because it's in a big centralized database that 
had a security vulnerability and it was worthwhile to hack it. And so what's what's really interesting in the developing world, you don't have that challenge because there currently is no centralized database. And the the total amount of value of the data in those databases is not nearly as high value as 150 million Americans credit data might be. And so one is that's a huge opportunity to look and say, we don't have to rebuild that system that has known vulnerabilities. One of the challenges is we've had 30 to, I mean, we've had 50 years in the developed world working with technology systems to understand some of the negatives. And when you go to somewhere where technology has not existed before, there is none of that institutional or individual or regulatory knowledge. And so it's really important up front to recognize that. And so when I look at consumer protection, when I look at what does the future look like, there's really two things. There's this entire capacity enablement, whether it's government regulator capacity or individual capacity or technical capacity that needs to happen in a country when these systems are coming. And then the second one is build systems that are human centric. I think it's entirely possible that in five years, we will look at the developing world where these types of initiatives like Kiva Protocol and Sierra Leone are taking off and we'll be envious of them from the developed world. They, they will have structures like GDPR, but they actually won't need them because the system by design will make sure the individual has agency and control over their data and that data is not disclosed between two third parties without the user's exact, like direct consent. And I think we're going to have to continue putting band-aids on our system in the developing world, in the developed world, or we're going to have to do some systems changes in the developed world to address that lack of user agency and user control over their data. Um, it's entirely possible that we could build in the developing world the system that we wish we had in New York today. Yeah, well, it's it's exciting, and I think you know we're all aware of the ways that technology has just accelerated so many parts of our lives and made so many things easier and better. My husband always says, um, I love living in the future <laughs> because just, you know, you can get food to your house and, you know, do a million things, book travel, whatever from like never leaving your couch is, is crazy. So, um, but there's also uh, doing it with an intentionality and an awareness for the ways that, current people are, are excluded. And so it's exciting to me that Kiva is stepping up in this way and sort of being this bridge with such a long legacy of being really innovative around financial inclusion uh, and, and then adopting and really engaging with technology in a new way. So you're in an exciting spot, Matthew, and um, I'm so glad you were able to join us today. Thank you for having me. And, and likewise, Kiva just feels blessed to have the opportunity to bring these things to life. That we hope that everything we've done over the past 15 years and everything we'll do for the next 15 years can help create a more inclusive financial future for everybody. And that's a wrap. It can be a little bit technical to understand the ways that Kiva is using their platform to revolutionize financial inclusion for unbanked populations. But if you take one thing from this episode, I hope it's this. There are hardworking people all over the world who are prevented from making their lives better by broken market systems. And while technology has plenty of unintended negative consequences, when used with the intentionality, world-changing, problem-solving approach that Kiva is taking, it can be an incredible tool for unlocking the potential of markets at scale to drive positive impact. Thank you for listening and let us know what you're working on at SOCAP Markets. 
Where are you seeing the potential of markets for impact? Visit our website for additional resources related to this episode at socialcapitalmarkets.net and please subscribe and share with friends. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.